Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, good morning. Good to be here this morning. And uh, to invite you to turn to your Bible. And this morning I want to look at a passage from John chapter 12. Uh, it is Palm Sunday, next weekend being Easter weekend, and the uh, focus will be on uh, what Jesus did and accomplished, but this particular event uh, leading up to his arrest and then ultimately his crucifixion as well. So John chapter 12, and follow with me in your Bible. I'm going to read from verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he, <coughs> excuse me, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from, <coughs> excuse me, from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Just so far, won't you join me as we pray? Lord, a coming, a coming to your throne of grace. And Lord, I particularly am aware in myself those songs that we just sang, particularly the last song, uh, the one desire to be holy. And Lord, may that be true. It's so easy to say that. And yet as we face the temptations of daily life in the world of darkness, so easily it is to yield to temptation and follow pathways into sin. And so give us, Lord, more and more that desire to be holy, to be sanctified by your Spirit and through your Word, even as we come to it this morning. And then, Lord, to worship you. May we, may we Lord, have hearts this morning receptive, open, to be ministered to you by your Spirit, and, Lord, even this wonderful Word that you have preserved for us. And we pray this, Lord, for the glory of your name, but also that your church may be edified. Amen. Well, I want us to think a little bit today as we begin this message about the, the ministry of Jesus. Now, there were three years of public ministry, and much of that public ministry took place where Jesus did not promote himself into positions of great prominence. He did not always seek the limelight. In fact, we see again and again and again that he holds back as much as possible from public notice. A couple of passages, maybe just as an example. There is that miraculous healing of the man with the withered hand, uh, the Pharisees conspiring against him, how to destroy him. And Matthew tells us in verse 15 of chapter 12, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. 
and he ordered them not to make him known. Do, do, do you get the idea? Much of his ministry, holding back, seeking to be uh, less uh, known, less in the public eye. We see a little later uh, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus responds with a very clear directive. Matthew chapter 16, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. In John's gospel, we have the miraculous feeding of the multitudes, 5,000 in John chapter 6. And again, we read, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, so my point in this introduction is I want us to see that we come to a passage this morning that is different. Many instances up to this point, over a long period of time, Jesus could have taken opportunities to promote himself, to receive public applause and, and, and to be in a place of prominence, but he didn't do so. He deliberately avoided opportunities of the applauding of the masses, but now it's different. Now... He takes the initiative. It seems out of character. He's doing this now at the busiest time of the year. It's uh, preparation for Passover. People were flocking into Jerusalem from far and wide, literally thousands upon thousands of people. And Jesus sends two of his disciples to prepare a donkey. He takes the initiative and moves in amongst the crowds. And some of the Pharisees uh, who then asked Jesus to rebuke his disciples for publicly declaring, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Luke chapter 19, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so we must ask ourselves, why? Why at this particular point in time, why this particular event does Jesus now expose himself into the masses of people that were in Jerusalem? Why did he allow them to proclaim him as king? And we know that in less than a week, he was to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. Well, there are two points I want to make and then three applications that I'll make. The first point is this. In this particular event, on this occasion, we see that Jesus demonstrates true obedience. Okay, there's, there's an obedience here. Jesus always obeying his Father. Now, in my mind, the passage that... Uh, I wondered about and thought through was in the garden. Remember his struggle, praying that this cup would be removed, but even in the midst of that particular struggle, his conclusion, his, his admission, his submission is, Lord, but your will be done, because Jesus always is obedient to his Father. Everything and anything that he does aligns with what the Father wants him to do, what the Father had planned for him to do, what the Father was unfolding in what we would call today redemption history. 
We find uh, the writer to the Hebrews confirming this. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Where in the Old Testament was it written about Jesus regarding this particular day and this particular event? Well, two passages are referred to. We find Jacob way back in the book of Genesis uh, speaking to his sons on his deathbed. In Genesis 49 verse 10, he says to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So what, what was he saying? He knew God directing him to give this particular word that over the years the tribes of Israel would evaporate many of them into obscurity uh, there, there was the the exile there was the captivity and uh, Judah would be preserved Judah would be preserved to bring forth God's appointed ruler the king one to whom ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue confess so there we have that which was written of him. Jacob pointing to the coming Messiah, the one who will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. We read in verse 13, so this, this crowd, this massive crowd, they took up branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It was written about and in this particular instance, on this particular day, it is fulfilled. That which will be finally ushered in by God at the end of time, at the second coming, yet we have a foretaste of Jesus' declaration as king. We, we, we find, uh, again, John's description in verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Notice the next words. Just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. He's quoting from the book of Zechariah, sitting on a donkey's colt. So if you go back to Zechariah, the uh, prophet, ch chapter 9, verse 9, there you have the prophetic word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. So here we have this perfect obedience of Jesus to the Father. And on this particular day, his obedience is to be a fulfillment of him declaring himself, exposing himself to be king, king of Israel, and of course, king of the world. So this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is a God-designed event. Recorded by the prophet Zechariah and Jesus doing what his father requires. What was the point of this? Yes, the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, obedience. No disobedience at all ever in his life. Obedient to the father. 
But, but what is he doing on that day? What, what, are the, what is the lesson that these people ought to be learning and ultimately the lesson that we can learn as well? What is achieved by him presenting himself at this point in time to Israel as king? My second point, Jesus demolishes all excuses. You see, the growing momentum of the context of the book makes one thing very, very clear. Jesus is heading to the cross. The religious leaders certainly want to have him crucified. And so the, 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 the thrust and, and the movement is, is, is that inevitably and soon the death of Christ looms with tragic vividness. Opposition has been growing amongst religious leaders. John 11 verse 53, after the raising of Lazarus, they made plans to put him to death. These plans included, John, uh, John eleven fifty seven orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And then even the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary, the response of Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 7, that she may keep it for my burial. Here's the message to these people in that crowded city on that day. God's purpose in requiring Jesus to act in this way, declaring himself publicly to be king, king was to expose them to who they were about to crucify. There was no doubt, there could be no doubt as to him claiming who he was to be king, the scriptures pointing to him being king, the response of the crowds affirming him to be king, and so there could be no doubt in their minds that those who were conspiring against him planning to crucify the king. Earlier on, they had asked him, John chapter 10, these are his opponents, the Pharisees and, and religious leaders. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? These then the days when he was holding back. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But he didn't. But now he does. Now he does. Now there are no excuses. All possible ground for ignorance was removed fulfilling the prophecies that God had provided in their book, the book that they held high, killing Jesus in spite of his public testimony to the nation that he was their king. The declarations of Scripture renders them guilty without excuse. Jesus is right there before them unashamedly, publicly. Jesus is right in their face, hailed as king by the visiting crowds. In fact, there were even those who had been with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb uh, and raised him from the dead who continued to bear witness. And their response? Their concern is the growing popularity that he's going, that the world has gone after him. They miss the clarity given to them regarding who Jesus is, that he is king and he has come in fulfillment of God's 
purpose. Now, folk, I don't know. Um, why is that? Why, why is it that men and women then, and we'll get to it today as well, dig their heels in denying the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do? Is it just stupidity? Or is it spiritual blindness? What is it? Well, the consequences of the action is their own fault. They end up without excuse and guilty before God. Which leaves me with three implications that I want to raise yet today. God has something to say to us, I believe, from this passage regarding this triumphant entry of Jesus as King, King of Kings into Jerusalem. First of all, Jesus is communicating to us something regarding authority. Each one of us operates in some system of authority. You submit to someone. You listen to some and certain voices. And, and, and here, there's a great lesson in application is who do you listen to? Do you listen to God? And more specifically, do you listen to what God says in the Bible? This passage is, 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 is clear that they, they, they missed, they ignored, and they did not see what kind of book is the Bible, that the Bible is a book of divine origin. Is there any other way of making sense of, of Jacob's prophecy or Zechariah's prophecy uttered hundreds and even thousands of years before? God gave them. God preserved them for your benefit and for my benefit. And so there's this, can I say, irrefutable, even conclusive proof of the divine inspiration of Scripture. This is not mere speculation by man. This is, this is the Holy Spirit moving men to write and record the Word of God for all of mankind. Notice John. He had confidence in the divine inspiration of the Bible. In verse 14, he records the event and he says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, not full stop, but just as it is written. God said it, and now it's unfolding. Even the confused disciples, they were a bit baffled on the day. They have their ignorance resolved, and uh, suddenly they wake up to the truthfulness of the Scripture. Verse 16, we're told, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The truthfulness of the Bible. And it's a challenge in the world that we're living in. Uh, much of uh, Christendom today is throwing the Bible out of the back door. If you follow anything of what's happening in the evangelical world at the moment, even in the United Kingdom amongst the Anglicans, there's a great divide because there are many bishops and arch archbishops who are declaring themselves to be cleverer than God. 
and they no longer believe the Bible and what the Bible says. But God has his remnant. Unfortunately, there are those who are standing up against popular opinion, against cultural momentum that's moving away from any kind of uh, godliness, standing for that which has been written. And do you, will you, will we as a church stand for that which is written? Because our convictions regarding the Bible, the nature of the Bible, will always affect the way we respond to it. Like Jesus, who responded to his father in obedience, ought we not also, if this is the word of God, to respond to the word of God always? Always, sometimes difficult to understand. Secondly, there's a message here regarding not only authority but also salvation. Why the perfect obedience of Jesus? Why does that come to the fore again and again as we read the scriptures? So, the growing momentum, I've already said this, of this. Uh, passage book is that Jesus is heading to the cross. His death is imminent. Not only are these religious leaders intent on getting rid of him, but Jesus is steadily moving towards the God-designated hour. This is, this is of God's design, where he will be lifted up on the cross. But in what condition? In what state? What, what is his record? All of this leaving us to see a flawless obedience in the life of Jesus. Flawless obedience. Jesus demonstrated complete and utter submission and obedience to the Father. We can say that differently. He did not ever sin. He did not ever transgress the will of God. And so by doing that, and we're coming to the table just now, Jesus authenticates his suitability to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes to the cross taking an impeccable record of perfect obedience to his Father. Now that is important for you and me. It's what we need. It's what each one of us need this week. Just think about yesterday, the day before yesterday. You said if not in deed, in thought. And, and so your record just for this past week is, is, is not as it ought to be or as it needs to be. You, you need and I need obedience. And, and I know that I have sinned. I need this gift. It's a gift that Jesus goes on to give to all who believe. It's the wonderful good news of the gospel. He will give that gift of perfection, of righteousness, and he gives it in exchange for a despicable record of disobedience. So he goes to the cross, perfectly uh, uh, obedient, 
But on the cross, he suffers under the wrath of the Father because an exchange has taken place. Mysteriously, we don't understand the fullness. The theological term we use is there's an imputation that takes place, a crediting of sin to Jesus. Our sin, your sin, my sin, people who lived in the past, people who lived in the future. And he suffers on behalf of sinful people. And not only does he do that, he gives his perfect record to those who believe. It's, it's the gospel. It, it, it's what we need. So, so your salvation, your, what you're hoping to, to, to access into the presence of God, your eternal safety, to, to have that place at the throne of the King of Kings, depends on whether you have a record of righteousness. You can't do it. I can't do it. But Jesus gives it. So your salvation depends on this perfect record of Jesus. Number three. There's a message here about accountability. This entry into Jerusalem exposed Jesus as the obedient king of, Jew, of the Jews. It demolished their excuses. They could not say or plead ignorance or deception or apathy or confusion. It was in their face that he indeed is the Christ, that he is the king. Now the temptation for you and me may be, well, you know, I was not there, so therefore I can have excuses. I don't know. <laughs> you were not there, but you have the Bible. You have the written word. More than they had. They had the Old Testament and they missed the boat. They wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't receive it. But we have the New Testament. We have the record of history. And not only the Old and the New Testaments. Do you know that for most centuries, people could not read for themselves? Only in the last couple of hundred years that people have, and in fact, in the last century, many people in the world are only beginning to learn to read and to write. Us sitting here in Pretoria, you have the written word of God that you can read for yourself, that you can understand, and therefore you have no excuse. No excuse. The revelation of God. All that you need to know for life and godliness. We have the gospel of John and, and, and just this passage where John says of, of the gospel, these are written so that you may believe. These are written so that you have a record that you can know, that you can know the truth. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Folk, there is no valid reason for not believing. Unless you believe, you will be found to be guilty. Tragic, tragic to be found guilty on that day. And let me add this morning the very unpopular words, Confirmed as guilty, deserving the worm that does not die, or the fire that is never quenched, spending eternity with the words of God ringing in your ear, away from me, you evildoer. 
I close with a well-known story of missionary, a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson. Some of you will be familiar. You will know that name. Uh, he spent most of his life in, and uh, ministry in the country of Burma. It's now uh, been renamed as the country, country of Myanmar. He was involved in gospel ministry and in difficult circumstances. This was not easy. Uh, it included during that season the loss of his wife, and several children. But he would leave over 7,000 Burmese believers as a result of that gospel ministry. A little bit of background about Judson. He was raised in a Christian home like some of the young people here today, maybe even some of the older people. But when he went off to college at Brown University, he was lured away from the Christian faith. How many of our young people are not lured away by the academic elite that teach at our universities? Well, he was lured away by a fellow student and close friend, a young man by the name of Jacob Eames. Eames rejected all revealed religion, including the Bible. Eames ridiculed the God of the Bible, and under Eames' assaults, Judson Judson's already fragile faith crumbled. On his 20th birthday, August the 9th, 1808, he announced to his parents, I am no longer a Christian. He abandoned his faith. He then left for New York, hoping to write for the theater. But when he was in New York, he found little fulfillment as a playwright, becoming quite disillusioned. But then one night... Now listen, listen to the amazing orchestration of God who is involved in this world. One night, while traveling through a small village, he spent the night at a local inn. The only available room was next door to a man who was dying. All night, the man groaned, crying out in desperation. Justin was so tormented by the despair in the man's cries that he could not sleep. Judson began to wonder, is this man prepared for death? (laughs) Because that's really all that matters for him right now. And then he asked himself, is he ready for death? His philosophy had taught him that death was nothing. And maybe some of you today believe that, that death is nothing, That, that, that death is just a door into an empty pit. That brought him little comfort now, listening to a man that was suffering and dying. At the same time, he could hear in the back of his mind the voice of his friend, Jacob Eames, mocking him. Come on, Judson, do you really believe that old stuff? Don't you know that we've grown up and matured in the world? You ought to be more progressive. That's the big word people use today as well. Come on, Judson, you're weak. Aren't you the valedictorian? For those who don't know what valedictorian is, you're the top student at the university. He got the best marks of all. Spooked by a little bit of superstitious religion, Well, Judson lay there switching between fear and shame, but still those groans. Eventually they stopped. The next morning as sunlight filled Judson's room, the sense of despair lifted as Judson felt ashamed for having given in to such weakness the night before. He got dressed, he went downstairs and asked at the front desk about the man in the adjoining room. 
he's dead, was the simple reply. Judson politely asked, Do you know who he was? Oh, yes. Young man, a young man from the college in Providence. Name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Now, I know this bloke couldn't move. He was he was frozen. He he didn't he didn't leave that inn for hours, hours. Later he reflected on that moment, and I quote him, he says, Lost in death. Jacob Eames was lost, utterly irrevocably lost. Lost to his friends, lost to the world, lost to the future. Lost as a puff of smoke in the infinity of air. If Eames' own views were true, neither his life nor his death had any meaning. But, but suppose Eames had been mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. Now, folk, I'll ask you that today. If you don't believe it, just for a minute, just for a minute, think about that. Suppose the, uh, the, the scriptures were literally true and a personal God real. For that, for that hell should open in that country in and snatch Jacob Eames, my dearest friend and God, from the next bed, <laughs> this could not simply be coincidence. Justin would shortly thereafter come to believe the gospel. Wonderful miracle of salvation. And then he poured the rest of his life out for that gospel, willing to suffer extraordinarily in the name of the Lord. So my concluding comments are simply this. Jacob Eames did not believe the Bible and he did not believe God to be real. He died without hope. Adoniram Judson believed the scriptures that they were literally true, all of it, and that a personal God is real and that Jesus came to save sinners. And so the question must be, as we come to the table this morning, are you like Jacob Eames? Or are you willing, like Judson, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Lord, I pray to that end. We're a mixed bunch of people here this morning, younger people, older people. We come from different cultural backgrounds, but Lord, we are people made in your image with a capacity to know you and to love you and to worship you and to serve you. But we know too, Lord, and confess our frailty as broken, sinful people and standing in need of grace. But Lord, in our differentness here this morning, those who have hard hearts, I pray that you would soften those hearts, that the seed of the word would penetrate and find access to find a receptive mind and soul and heart accepting and believing in Jesus. 
please, Lord, will you do that among us even today? For those, Lord, who are struggling, I pray for them. For those who have come to know you, won't you just even affirm, encouraging them, their hearts resonating with the truth of the gospel, that indeed you are King and God, and that we are your children. And even as we come to your table, may it be a time of rich fellowship with you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.